What's up, everyone? Welcome to Big Digital Energy. This is the first time in a while that we've had everyone here in studio. We got the mullet man, Kirk, back from damn dude Nantucket. <laughs> hey, but let's have a, a let's have a quick moment here in your absence, just to make note of the fact that when Kirk and I did this solo, two x the downloads of a normal BDE viewing. Have just we, for the record, have we verified this number? Mark, does anyone verify this information? It's, un- I don't it's unverifiable. <laughs> I, they're never going to find the fact that I paid a bunch of bots to go <laughs> yeah. do it. But it's all right. It's fake news. It's <laughs> bad data, whatever. So Mark's been out. Where were you, Mark? Where were you traveling? Uh, Tennessee. Tennessee. So, yeah. 20 degrees cooler. Tennessee. It's our first time all being in the studio. Back Everyone's back, Tennessee. back ready for business. So, Take me to another place. When Chuck's done singing. Right. <laughs> business <laughs> in the front, party in the back. It's like a show low. <laughs> I'm actually kind of upset that I saw the saw the video of Kirk with his <clears throat> mullet and sunglasses. I thought that look should be permanent, not a one-time thing. I mean, when it's 105 degrees, and when I when I'm outside playing golf or doing something, it really is hot. <laughs> <laughs> that lettuce is hard Just to eat. Made, man. made an actual difference. And I'm not that. You know, Vlad's quote was, "I sure hope Kirk didn't pay a lot for those glasses." <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Vlad. Leave it to Vlad to, to talk some trash. All right, what we got this weekend? Energy news. Who's kicking it off, Mark? Um, just a little blur about this morning. TPH was commenting on something we've been talking a little bit. Is you know where where are the stocks valuation wise? What are they reflecting? But they had a piece on upstream stocks and their coverage group and what 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 implied price deck based upon where the you know stocks are or where valuation looks to be, and that's somewhere in the sixty to seventy dollar range. Um, not kind of blinding insight at least um for for this audience but you know basically talking about how you know the market seems to be working past the demand concerns the recession recession concerns the kind of show me stuff we had been talking about a few months ago and um you know suggesting that if you believe we're in more of an 80 to 90 dollar world there's pretty meaningful upside from here in a, in a group that's just now starting to play catch up with the rest of the market. I, I actually I want to ask you a question on this, Mark, because I was always a private company guy and never really understood public stocks and all. I had, I'll, I'll say these as a statement, but really just a question for you is whenever they would say they would work backwards, you know, it implies $60 oil or whatever. Implicit in that is some sort of valuation multiple or discount rate or something. And I always thought maybe they're getting the discount rate wrong now. It's just riskier. The discount rate should be higher. Maybe it's discounting 80 oil. So that was kind of a number one thought I had on the on the public stuff. And then the number two thought that I'll let you run with is have we gotten to the point where public equities are such a small piece of the overall market? Shouldn't there be some selection bias in that if I believe in $120 oil, I should be able to buy the stock and there's not enough stock? So it, it I guess where I'm going with this is it kind of shocks me. It implies $60 oil when you would think the bulls out there with the limited amount of supply should be dominating. But anyway. Yeah, I think that's, you know, we're still at five-ish percent of the S&P. I don't know what the precise weighting is that's dominated by, you know, the majors and upstream companies for sure. But to to get back to your point about, you know, this derivation of price decks or what the stocks are discounting, at least in distant past practice, there there wasn't much work done to to update or modify cost of capital assumptions. That's one. Uh, the other thing that is usually the case, and I'm not saying it was in this case, is that everything else remains static. So you, you're not changing cost structures mm-hmm. as you move mm-hmm. prices up and down. Um, and then there are those other factors that you you raise that are you know potentially certainly in in the kind of phantom discounting, if you will, because of the risk, uh, the the different types of risks that are you know, kind of new to the sector in the way we think about investors thinking about oil and gas stocks. So, because I would think, 
the firestorm we went through over the last, call it, you know, five years or maybe even the last 15 years, <laughs> the day of reckoning should have hit that maybe we need greater returns to be an EMP than historically PDP, PV8, and PUDs for PV15 or whatever the valuation metrics metrics are. But anyway. Well, there's there's a lot of crosswinds now that, that you didn't have as a, an energy PM at some of these bigger shops that, you know, you're not going to go to your CIO and stick your neck out if you've missed a bit of a move in the sector. If it's, you know, back in the day when it was three to four percent of the S&P, it didn't matter. Right. So, yeah. And where are you going to move the money if you still want to be in energy? Right. Yeah. I mean, where do you put it? Yeah. Because nobody's going to go trade commodities. I mean, you're not going to walk and, into your board and say, I need to post more margin on uh, that's right on and, orange juice and, and, futures. And, and, and <laughs> as we've spoken before, is those that actually have heavy trading arms, like the shells of the world uh, versus the Exxons, <laughs> is they're actually traded at lower multiple. Now, some claim it's because they're, they're listed in Europe, but many claim it's because of the riskiness of their commodities divisions because they're trading on margin. Mm. Um, and so what do you think, what do you think, Mark? Well, I, I, I'm going to not answer that question, but <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Perfect. I, I, I was good analysis. <laughs> one of the, one of the single greatest things <laughs> ever said analysis from Mark. <laughs> one of the greatest single things ever told to me in my career is John Jacoby, the crusty old guy that managed all the Stevens family money at one point i was talking about going to a meeting i was nervous and all that and he goes oh hell investment banking is just the art of stating the obvious with an air of discovery <laughs> i think that's a rerun on bde but it's a good one yeah i've go. heard i've heard chuck i've got five stories yeah. guys <laughs> now I was, I, was, I was i was thinking about you know something we'll talk about later and it's not directly related but it is in the same category which is this notion of ESG factors and and how investment decisions are being made, and whether or not you know certain stocks or certain sectors or subsectors of the investable bucket, and I think that has more of a pronounced effect even today than we like to think that it does because we've seen quite a bit of pushback on this front, right across the board. Well, there's a few actually interesting, timely stories, Mark, that you're probably alluding to. One is the fact that the UN, the United Nations for some of us, are investigating Aramco um, and expect others to receive strongly worded letters um, because of how climate change is linked um, is linked to human rights violations. Because, so they've basically sent notice to Aramco and not only did they send notice to Aramco, but they actually have written letters. The United Nations have written letters to Aramco's key stakeholders, their banks, their partners saying, we're investigating them for violating human rights because of climate change. And even though the United Nations is not a legal arm and there's really nothing that they can do legally to Aramco, it does send shockwaves and potentially opens Aramco for other lawsuits. So that's a pretty big um story i think i've got another one to go right on top of that but let's first just throw that out i just imagine ramco getting the letter opening it up and just throwing it in the trash like well they haven't haven't responded apparently the letter was was sent on june 26th and reuters was just reporting on at least the story i picked up and there are four unnamed quote-unquote experts on a committee or special working group that issued this letter of mm-hmm. concerns. I, I don't even know if it qualifies after reading more into it as a strongly worded letter, but you know, very quick to point out it's non-binding. Aramco hasn't responded and it's unusual for the UN to do these things that target or, or address mm-hmm. to companies and not nation states or, or countries. And so maybe because Aramco is a state, <clears throat> partially a state entity, um, it was, you know, they've got the higher responsibility. They've said explicitly net zero. Aramco has said explicitly net zero by 2050. So this is, I think this is the tip of the iceberg of more of the same coming for um, Aramco's peers, uh, both on the NOC side and on the super major side. But so. essentially the probe follows a 2021 request by the UN Special Procedures Human Rights System 
which is a, I guess, a subgroup within the UN. And it was really been uh, spearheaded by an environmental advocacy group called Client Earth. So the UN is getting outside pressure from, from groups to go investigate these companies. Now, I think it's an interesting story, but, but at the same time, there's a great article uh, this week in the Financial Times about investors warn fluffy ESG metrics are being gamed to boost hold bonuses. On, hold, on, hold on, back to the UN real quick. Let's go back there. Have they done anything in their history besides like produce a marginally attractive holiday card? I mean, they really <laughs> do. They do holiday card great, you know. Have you been Best to their- wishes yeah. these, But seriously. <laughs> I mean, what is, I mean, Iran is on the Human Rights Commission, right? Or one of their committees. I mean, give me a break. That's what I think is funny is Saudi Arabia just imprisons people from other countries to come do very bottom of the barrel work for them. And we send a letter about climate change being (laughs) linked to human rights issues. rights issues. That's what you, (laughs) what did they do? Like get the letter and go cut off a journalist's head. Yeah. That's a, that's a, I find that to be posturing. So it's interesting at the same time, you've got, you know, the hand over here saying it's all, you know, climate change is linked to human, is a human rights problem. And Aramco is the biggest emitter. On the other hand, you've got all these ESG metrics um, growing. Now, as I've done done some research, it's interesting. Three quarters of the S&P 500 have disclosed the influence of ESG metrics on executive executive pay. The people that make the decisions yeah. arise from two-thirds in 2021. At the same time, profitability metrics are going down. So a great example, this is just the cream of the crop at Southwest. Airlines CEO Robert Jordan's pay increased 76% last year to 5.3 million, by the way. Even though the airline angered passengers by canceling more than 1,600 flights during the holiday season. So what's happening is if you're an executive at these Fortune 500s, you're getting paid more to hit these ESG metrics than to be a good company. Even though your profitabilities go out. In I'm fact- profitability metrics have gone from over 60% as part of their executive pay to almost 40% over the since 2015 to today. I'm actually kind of surprised that the Southwest CEO makes only $5 million a year. I thought it'd be higher than that. No, airlines don't make any money and they're at probably the That's best true. one airline. <laughs> But they've hit the ESG metric. They hit the ESG metric. So they were. So did they delineate what specific ESG metric well, performance boost or incentive boost that the problem is there's few like actually speaking of i mean strike management vivek ramaswamy's firm has been very critical because as i know having been inside of one of these big beasts esg metrics are a total scam and fraud mm-hmm. like what is an esg metric there are many metrics we could talk about them in, in specifics but the reality is there are those out there, especially hedge funds, um, that are saying, wait a minute, we don't understand what these metrics are. They're fluffy. Profitability is something you can track I, and you can earn. Yeah. But an ESG metric is like we, you know, we hired, you know, we're ninety percent diverse. We, you know, lowered our carbon we emission. Kumbaya twelve times this month. And That's it's right. a moving target as well. But I mean, what I know is like whatever you're paid to do, you're going to do. So it's Charlie Munger, show me a man's incentives, I'll show you his behavior. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Well, what Vivek and, and Strive have basically said over the entirety of, entirety of their existence um, is very consistent that, you know, the rules are that if you are a publicly traded corporation in the U.S., the trade-off for limited liability is a singular focus on shareholder primacy and profitability. And so we're starting to supplant that with this creep in Absolutely. non-financials, uh, non-financial and non, you know, performance factors related to uh, things other than profitability maximization. So those stories are directly related. The UN, I mean, the, the it's interesting mm-hmm time that we're in because it's it's a it's basically it's wealth redistribution is what's going on and, yeah. and it's scary well, it, it's also cottage industries around things like um shareholder ranking and scoring it's certainly the legal profession that that specializes in this growing kind of mushroom cloud of 
you know, I, I, I find the, the conversations with investors and with analysts who are increasingly, at least over the last five years, dealing with trying to sort through all this, I find those conversations to be no less ambiguous than they were five years ago. Right. There's not a lot of clarity. And yeah. it, it, it's kind of a whack-a-mole game or a moving target. And there's just not a lot of tangible specificity. Speaking to the ability to kind of, you know, set easy hurdles or game the system, I, you know, routine flaring for, to use a specific upstream, upstream example. Fundamentally, why do you get paid incentive to reduce or eliminate your routine flaring that you shouldn't have been doing in the first place? Right. Absolutely. But let's go back to my favorite, one of my favorite companies, Southwest, because Herb Keller was kind of a fan. Uh, I'm a total fanboy. Because my dad used to drive to Dallas from here. He owned a business, he started a business, and he, and, and Southwest really went after him. And at one point, Herb Keller, the CEO and found, co founder or founder, he was one of the largest distributors of whiskey in the entire world because they gave whiskey as a promotion for flying Southwest. Now, I bet Herb Keller, who the only guy I've ever seen smoke inside of the McComb School of Business when I was at business school. <laughs> you're not allowed to smoke in there, but Herb smoked at least two packs of cigarettes when he came and talked to our class. That guy must be rolling in his grave that the new CEO is getting a bonus for hitting some metrics about ESG while the airline profitability and anger to their customers are going way yeah. south. I'd say even that's the bigger thing outside of their PL is the user experience. Like over the last year and a half to two years, everyone that was like super loyal Southwest flyers. I mean, you go there and it's flight cancellations and just the quality of customer service has gone down. So you spend generations, decades building up a brand and reputation like that and then just piss it away and Two years is pretty Because um, this is important. To, to your point, the reason he was giving those bottles away is Braniff was the big airline. They went head-to-head with Braniff, and Braniff came out and basically said, we're going to cut the ticket price to $12 a ticket. Southwest ran the numbers, and they would be out of business in six months if they matched the – if they went from $18 to 12 And – Herb actually came out and just did an ad where he just said, hey, I got to stick at 18. I can't match Braniff at 12. But if you like those guys being the only guy in town, fly them. If you want me around, I'll give you your bottle of whiskey. Yeah. And, and that was. And my dad it. did it. Yeah. <laughs> I want that bottle of another, whiskey. Yeah, I did. Another bit of Southwest <laughs> trivia. <clears throat> Why was gate one at Love Field always the San Antonio flight? Was that flight number one? Nope. Okay. I don't know. No say. Because when Herb started the airline, it was headquartered in Dallas, but he lived in San Antonio, and he never moved. So the first <laughs> gate for his commute was the first gate at Love Field was the flight to San Antonio. Nice. That's interesting. One last, one last Herb uh, fanboy thing. So they – I don't know. We were yeah, – Southwest <laughs> – Historians here. Big consumer of fuel or something. Big consumer of alcohol. I mean, <laughs> yeah. they go together, right? Exactly. And you probably used to smoke at some point. I never did. I have okay. nicotine withdrawal. So, like, <laughs> if I ever, if you give me a cigar, like thirty minutes later, I'm puking. But anyway, um, no, this was great. So there was some brouhaha where they. Ch- changed the name of their frequent flyer program and they didn't have the copyright on it and some trucking company or something had the rights to it. And for whatever reason, this a lawsuit happens and Herb finally hears about it. Like, what the hell's going on? It's like, well, we kind of use this name. This guy has the name. We think we can use it for being an airline and not a trucking company or whatever. And Herb calls the other CEO and says, hey, we screwed up. I'm really sorry. Can we arm wrestle for the name? Uh, yeah. And the There's CEO was like, are you serious? He goes, yeah, let's just arm wrestle for the name. And he went, wink, wink, nod, nod. I'm going to lose. But there was so much publicity about it. Herb was training by smoking three packs <laughs> while he was doing it. Comes out, they have like the Rocky theme song playing. He loses. They change the name. But the free media he got from just yeah. handling it that way. 
I said, that Elon, was a Elon Musk he was a man. That, he was a man. Elon Musk has taken that playbook with his fight against I mean, Zuckerberg. Whole, I mean, yeah, he's a man, dude. Yeah, he was awesome. Speaking of Elon, X, did y'all see this Twitter post I made the other day about the wildfires in Greece? Y'all see this? It's no. The Where arsonists are, are. Aren't you mixing terms there? Twitter wait, wait. post. It's arson, <laughs> but it, the arsonists wouldn't have started the fires if it wasn't for climate change. Is yeah. that? Is that where you're going? So yeah, so BBC News puts out this news article, and the headline is "Greece Wildfires: 79 People Arrested for Arson." And then you get into the article, and it's got some quotes in there. So listen to this real quick. All right, the quotes um, said that uh, arsonist scum are setting fires that threaten forest property, most of all human lives. Mister, some Greek name Kiklias. I don't know how to say that. Sounds like a Greek god. It's, it's a Greek. It's a Greek name. Told Greeks during a televised emergency <clears throat> briefing on Thursday, "You will not get away with it. We will find you, and you will be held accountable." So that's quotes from a Greek official. And then this BBC article right under it says, "Summer wildfires are common in Greece, and scientists have linked the increasing frequency and intensity of extreme weather events, including heat waves, to climate change." I'm like, what the fuck does that have to do with 79 people that they've arrested already? This is a conspiracy, you know. A coordinated group that's got conspiracy to set wildfires, and are we at the point now where we're seeing attempted arson in the name of climate change? And you would think, like on surface, you're like, "Hey, climate cult isn't that that brash. They're not going to do that." But honestly, I don't put anything past them now. I mean, climate terrorism has been a thing. There's been Absolutely. blog posts and podcasts of how to mm. blow up pipelines and things of this nature. Is this something that we're going to keep seeing is forest fires being set on purpose to illustrate the point of climate change, which just for everyone's knowledge, I mean, fires, forest fires can happen regardless of dry vegetation or wet vegetation. I mean, fires, fire. Um, what do y'all think? Is this like the new trend, climate terrorism, starting fires? Well, I'm convinced by you reading that, that AI helped write the BBC article. So that, <laughs> <laughs> which used five watts, which now tells me BBC, they're not very- They're not net zero. <laughs> yeah, they're not net zero, those bastards. <laughs> yeah, the- uh, Versus one watt. They well, Google this wasn't the first, AI. there were some arson related arrests simultaneous with the Canadian fires yeah. earlier in the year. I guess I'm just like blown away by the amount of people that they've arrested. 79. I mean, that's a coordinated effort. That's a coordinated effort. For that's sure. not. It's a gaggle of people. Yeah. <laughs> it's not isolated. <laughs> it's not isolated people and coincidental timing and effort of starting fires. I mean, 79 people is some, you know, that's half the people that come to an energy tech night. That's like, <laughs> that's a good size amount of people. So um, I don't know, you know, the, the Greek official appreciated his response and attacking the arsonist directly, but then this BBC article, like just nonchalantly throws out. This By the way, about, since you were a young man, have you seen the movie quest for fire? No. All right. So now we get fires all the time now. It's like, it's obvious you can, you can buy a lighter in a, in a, in a grocery store, but this movie before there were tools back in the old, old days when it was just cavemen run around. It was all about the quest for fire because the only way they knew how to make fire was in lightning struck and something burned. So yeah, you got to go back. This is an exercise for all of us. Go watch Quest for Fire. Great movie. Is it an old movie? Is that why you asked me? Because I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> it's so old. I don't Colin, even think there are two guys do next to you. Yeah. Show it is. They're like, what is that? Quest for Fire. I've never heard of it. Well, you know what's interesting about that is that, um, I mean, there's been periods in in the Earth's history where the entire world was on fire. I mean, way before humans got here, and maybe it was a result of climate change. And you know, climate's changed for a long fucking time. Uh, when Chuck hit middle age, I think it was in the seventies. They used to at, during in that decade, they were talking about it was going to be a a um, it was going to free the Earth was going to freeze. Yeah, I mean, I was actually the was ice gonna, age was coming. Back I was going right to send Chuck. that in a tweet today. Is that is humankind going to live with climate anxiety and I mean, for the rest of, of human civilization, because the climate will always be changing, always has, always will. And 
you know, maybe we find ways to reduce CO2 and man-made um, emissions and second order effects and climate change. But even if we do that, the climate changes. And I don't think we'll ever have the ability to control the I climate. I like Chuck's so, point. You said something to me last week that I was like, that was pretty profound. In the episode that was so highly rated? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what did I say that was so profound? Well, I, I think you said, show me data that proves climate change and show me data that doesn't prove climate change. Show me how weather is actually yeah, has well, changed. That, that's always the thing you ask, oh, this data means climate change is happening? Hypothetically, tell me the data. What would the fact pattern look like if we didn't have climate change? And everybody's like, well, I don't know. And I go, well, then you can't have one side of a coin, right? Yeah. If data proves it, great. Show me the, what the case would look like. Chuck is it. an investment well, banker. And, and that's, you know, <laughs> that, that's pointed out by many others. Um, Vivek and Strive that we talked about earlier. Uh, Alex Epstein has talked quite a bit about the positive ledger side that is never accounted for when we go through the negative consequences of fossil fuels as it relates to emissions and climate change. And, and even so, forest fires we put out now. We have the capability right. of putting the fires out back way back in the day. I mean, they have mm. forests that burned all to the ground. You know, before uh, oh, yeah, I want to hear some tinfoil hat shit that just popped up in my Twitter feed. It says DARPA research investigated how to weaponize fires all over the world, including in Greece. And they put these schematics from DARPA on weaponizing forest fires. Really? I just thought it came from a laser beam from, from a satellite. <laughs> the dark side of the moon. <laughs> I've seen weird. I was it weird, not weird science. What was the one about Caltech? Great movie. Real anyway, genius. real genius. Wasn't that a uh, laser beam that that was a big laser beam that did. created a fire? Yeah, anytime you talk about laser beams, like I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we got to get right. to wake him up. Laser beams and aliens. Speaking <laughs> of anxiety and laser beams, uh, we haven't. I mean, we've talked last week about the EV stacking up and the problem of EVs. Yeah, y'all heard about this. We have some data, right, Mark? Yeah, by the way, I was on last week. I just wasn't here. So well, we know, but but <laughs> Mark said Mark's feeling a little left out. <laughs> Mark wrote that line. 12 Mark will be here. Mark will be here episode. three hours early every week to make sure. <laughs> What's the data, Mark? What do we got? And wrap in there how your picture's never on the uh... <laughs> Go ahead. We need to retrain that model. <laughs> Um, Business Insider had a piece out on just generally what's happening at the dealer level with respect to EVs. Um, customer demand is cooling. We have direct experience among the uh, panel here on BDE with reasons for cooling customer experience, despite the fact that your EV was probably in a little bit different stratosphere. But nonetheless, um, you and I were, Kirk, you and I were talking about for the show that, you know, dealers are the leading edge and there's this growing tension and friction between the automakers themselves and dealers because the automakers are incentivized to keep cranking out EVs and the market's saying no in a lot of cases or pushing way back. So inventories are building. One, one interesting data point earlier this summer or going into the summer dealer inventory for all vehicles measured about 54 days. If you parsed out EVs, that number of inventory duration was twice that. So as a recent EV owner. Do we, did you read anything in there about price data? Have we seen them starting to slash prices on it yet? And selfishly I'm asking because the girlfriend's talking about going and getting a new car. Well, there's two, there's a couple problems. I know from this article and a few others is that some dealers are refusing inventory and they can, until they can move the existing inventory. Okay. But, but dealers, the dealer model, unlike Tesla, as we talked about, doesn't, they don't make a lot of money. So they're not slashing prices at this point, but they're sort of stuck in a sort of like, we're going to move other cars to make money and we're going to try to sell these EVs. And they're realizing this is coming from the dealers that there's a shift in demographics. Like 
all the early adopters that bought the premium cars have sort of we've we've hit that now it's to the mainstream to the mass adoption level which there's an interesting article bloomberg about the five percent the magic five percent number which i'll talk about but the answer is that's coming but there's no supply of evs that maybe your gf wants that sort of fit her mainstream mentality if she wants a good deal well because i mean what and these numbers are somewhat dated because i haven't looked them up recently but we sell about seven eight million cars a year in america now that's pre-pandemic type stuff six million to to seven million of those cars were forty five thousand dollars and cheaper right so that's your 5% number right there. It's it's until we had an EV that was functional, blah, 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 below 45,000, it was going to be the the land of rich people. So if you recall, we talked about last week, the Vietnamese was five seater, last week? five-seater competitor. I was here virtually. <laughs> five-seater competitor was priced, I think, somewhere like twelve to $1,500 over the Tesla Model Y was its direct competitor. But the difference with the Tesla Model Y and the, I forget the name of the Vietnamese manufacturer, I did see their stock was up like 40% this morning. Um, I don't know if that's come back, but the difference in the Tesla Model Y and the further advantage it has is that it meets the criteria of the Inflation Reduction Act. So there is that $7,500 give back or rebate. You know, car dealership guy on Twitter had this tweet and he said, I'm on a call right now with an exec from a multi-billion dollar automotive automotive company. Asked him about electric vehicle sales. His response, Tesla is the Apple of EVs. Everyone else is Android. He said, let's keep it real. Customers that come in specifically looking for an EV are buying a Tesla 99% of the time. The rest don't give a shit whether their car runs on electric, coal, or wind as long as they can afford it. Yeah, that, well, that's an that, interesting analogy. I mean, your your specific case was the aggravation of a lot of things, not the least of which was range anxiety and and you can never get access to convenient super, lack of to convenience a super fast range. charger. That's There's right. Not enough of them, and they're all taken up by crews. You arguably have a little more flexibility in your day to day than somebody who's depending on because we I all don't have do. a real job. Thanks. We all do. Thanks, Mark. None of us do. Yeah, <clears throat> but you, that. Being said, if I'm critically dependent upon something being charged and ready to go that gets me to work or the consequences of getting fired if I don't get there, that's an order of magnitude greater kind of Absolutely. problem. Absolutely. You know, there's so, a book called Crossing the Chasm, and it talks about how you have your early adopters and products, and it really the cover is a, just a normal distribution curve. And you can always get early adopters, people using the product, but actually getting over that hump to the mass uh, market is a different iteration of product adoption. And I look at my neighborhood, I I was thinking about this the other day as as I was walking, because there's this little subset of my neighborhood where my house is, and there's probably, call it 30 other houses, and none of the houses have an EV except for one house. And this guy's got an F-150 Lightning and one of the Rivian SUVs. Mm-hmm. Like his fucking garage is decked out, you know, $200,000 worth hey, of let's go over. EVs. And so you got that one guy that kind of compensates for the rest of the neighborhood. And everyone else has gas pickup trucks. And, you know, I live in a neighborhood that's, you know, upper middle class, well diversified. And so I look at it as a pretty good sample set of at least in Houston of kind of what the future looks like for people in the burbs and right now it's all ice vehicles well um, there's some i mean we're seeing so dealer inventory is real we're seeing that the stock up they're not taking a lot of them are refusing to take more evs we talked about the fact that you know crossing the chasm that the price point's still too high yeah prices need to fall there's range anxiety which is a real issue and there's increased costs that as we're heading into potentially a big recession. So the economy is not, we have inflation, things aren't going great. If you're dependent upon a car to get to work every day, this is not necessarily a smart choice. Yeah. And Bloomberg had some interesting, an interesting, their their analysis and forecast is, once a society, a state reaches 5% penetration of EVs, then the adoption of EVs is almost like, it's, it's a stair, step function change yeah. growth 
the U.S. reached over 5% in 2021. So we're already above that. Mm. Now, their analysis is, well, when when technology, when products like mass adoption products, like the microwave hits 5% adoption, then everyone gets one. Well, guess what? The microwave, I remember, because when my, my, my dad gave my mom a plastic microwave as a joke one, one Christmas, that was was uncomfortable for for the whole family because <laughs> she was so mad. He went a, a week later and bought her a new one, but a, a real one. But microwaves were expensive. But microwaves fell in cost. But a microwave, a cost of a microwave is very different from your second or first largest purchase. Yeah. So Bloomberg saying, hey, when you see products hit 5% adoption, then the whole market's going to buy it. I'm like, well, <laughs> cars are a much different thing. But what also, what did, micro, what did microwaves replace? Like what was, what were they replacing? Toaster ovens? The or? formerly, a lot of us used to have Burn. these things called gas ovens, but they're now electric. We'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. It's different. But, but no, but it's not it even. It was a, arguably better performance. Yes, it was but more time. It's not even analogous. What it was replacing wasn't even analogous. Like we still use ovens today, right? But like a microwave was a new type of technology and concept. Like it was well, a material step change in function. Okay. So I don't even see it as like replacing something. The electric well, vehicle is not replacing. It's not replacing. It's a competitor. Yes, it's yeah. a competitor. Yeah, and, it's not and, replacing. And EVs have a different framework from kind of the physics problems you're trying to solve or the physical world problems you're trying to solve mm -hmm. that something that's more simplistic and straightforward as a microwave doesn't. You know, the physical world around mining and metallurgy. Absolutely. And, and infrastructure and all those things, you know, I'm I'm a bit skeptical of you know the proponents of an S-curve type of of profile happening with EVs just because the physical world has proven time and again that it doesn't work that way. And yeah. and this hasn't hit the consciousness of thought yeah. on it, but I truly believe this power price is going to double or triple over the next five years. Have they to. just are. have to. There are. We've I talked mean, about the grid constraints. Yeah. We've talked about all of it. I had Tim Kramer on the podcast. We talked about it. I mean, power price is going up. So it's not even going to be the, well, you know, I can have a payback because I'm not buying gasoline. I don't Damn, that's, wait a minute. Not there you anymore. heard it here, bro. You but heard I think it here. Power, I mean, when power prices increase, I mean, just the price of energy increases across the board, right? And so I've never looked at it like... I don't think that it's fair to look at it as like, oh, I'm going to get my payback from using electricity over gasoline. I think that's a very poor argument. But, you know, it was even, real at one point. I mean, yeah, no, you could, no, you no, could no, look yeah. and actually see dollars doing yeah, it. But, but yeah. and Jenner actually point. wrote an article on this, which was interesting about like electricity versus gas. But I think he, I think the point was. But missed. I think that's a short term arb, yeah. essentially. Like, I don't think that that lasts over long terms. And so, you know, when I look at EVs, I think EVs can win part of the market based off of being a better product than ICE vehicles in certain situations. Like, you know, for me, I could get away with an EV all day driving back and forth uh, from work and charging at my house overnight, no problem. But even still, like I bought a new vehicle last year. I bought a fucking Toyota Camry. Why? Because, hey, price point, I know it's reliable. Uh, <coughs> you know, go down, go down the list um, instead of, you know, pinning or, you know, really poning up and buying a Tesla or an F-150 Lightning, like it's hard to justify buying those things right now. If you're looking at it from a pure pragmatic, I need to use a vehicle to get to point A to point B, like it's hard to justify buying an EV over some gas cars. And I will say this, and I won't belabor the point, and I won't go on my diatribe like I normally do about it. At the end of the day, the breakover point on the carbon footprint is not like a one-year payback. Go, oh, read, no. go to the Volvo website, read the 150-page report. They're talking, you know, 75,000 miles is the breakover. That's, you know, three to five years. It's hard years. math. It's That's hard math. That's three to five years. So we're going to spend trillions to do all this for three to five years. Yes, marginally better for the climate, although people could argue it's not once you get into disposal costs, all that. But- it's oh, not and, a no-brainer. And here comes Utah, for, Oregon, and maybe Michigan yeah. saying we're charging I won't even tax say, per mile. I won't even say that, but when I was moderating my panel at Koga, 
we had an extra three minutes and i said they're tracking you i, no, it's it. a, oh, I saw an in, interesting in point not allowing any more copper mining right yeah lay so, that on us that's a good one hold on, hold on. that's before, actually a good before story. you get into that i want to talk about tires on evs real quick because i saw an interesting point a few days ago that someone brought up like i've already known that a lot of teslas will burn through tires just based on the weight of the the vehicle and the profile of the tire but um, one thing I didn't think about was um, the lifespan of tires on EVs is shorter because people are finding newfound lead foots with the torque and acceleration. Ass. Yeah. yeah and so they're speeding incredible. everywhere and just wearing out their tires. And so um, <laughs> I just think that's a super interesting point of like tire churn. It's like when is, people buy those little sport bikes, motorcycles, they yeah. they figure out, they go, they start going like 90, 100, 110 until <laughs> yeah. they die. But Because yeah. I mean, the, the, the point that people always find fascinating that I say is the amount of energy stored in a barrel of oil weighs about 300 pounds. That same amount of energy stored in lithium weighs 20,000 pounds. God and that's damn. just God. God made that when he started, he or yeah. she started the earth. And that's just that. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. All right. Take us to Alaska. Back back to the physical world constraints. This deals with copper mining. Uh, Doomberg came out, I think it was last Sunday. It was. Uh, there been, there's been another one since. But this one was titled Pebble Beached. And it was named after a proposed mining development in upstream of Bristol Bay in Alaska, which you can imagine is a very sensitive area uh, for good reason. Um both marine and, and freshwater streams and, and uh, salmon fisheries, et cetera. And so this has been a multi-year battle um, with a lot of opposition to developing the mine. And ultimately, it was killed at the federal level by the Biden administration. So, and, and Doomberg even admitted, said, look, if we lived there, we probably wouldn't want a copper mine in, you know, in and amongst our natural beauty and, and habitat. But the interesting really domino effect of this um, they then talked about the difficulties that are emerging in chile and peru both on the cost and delay side but also the political and environmental opposition side which has then caused a further domino to fall where now the democratic republic of congo is going neck and neck with peru as the number two copper producer in the world and we all know because we've talked about the cobalt issue in Congo that mining there is kind of hands off by U.S. and Western companies for a lot of reasons, not the least of which are Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, China's violation, there, and we buy from China. And China has has predictably swooped in over the years and secured a lot of the mineral rights, uh, including copper, by investing billions of dollars because they really just keep churning straight ahead to, to, to dominate raw materials. Copper is just another, you know, another in the chain of things that need to get sorted out if we're really going to hit that S-curve of adoption of an electrification of a lot of things, including EVs. So. As a ran by the man himself. <laughs> no, I mean, and, and at the end of the day, I mean, we need to be intellectually honest and consistent if we're going to mandate electric vehicles, we sure as hell ought to mine for the stuff in the United States, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're going to be, we're going to be in real try. And, and I used to be the biggest free trader on the planet, you know? So protectionism was the evil word and all that. You go through a pandemic where you can't get medicine. You can't get freaking toilet paper. No, that was kind of Because crazy. we're buying yeah. it out of China. I'm willing to pay a little bit of a higher price to do stuff here and have some protectionism. Yeah, you know, it's funny that our grandparents, great-grandparents kind of built up this mindset and mantra of built in America or bought in the USA, and that didn't really carry over to, like, my generation, for example. But then you get in COVID and all of a sudden supply chains. I mean, supply chains were wrecked for a long time. Like, you know, going to 2021, 2022, you still couldn't go in the stores and, you know, get certain electronics and things of that nature. and kind of puts in um puts it in a perspective of how fragile supply chains are and become dependent on one country for something yeah. puts you puts you at risk so one quick thing i wanted to talk about before we get to the end of the show something exciting in energy <clears throat> um, exciting to me at least is that 
uh, last week, Texas had two virtual power plants that um, kicked on and started diverting energy to the grid. So this uh, this project in Texas is called Aggregate Distributed Energy Resource. The acronym is ADER, A-D-E-R. Um, so there's currently eight reef eight resources referred to as aiders and right now there's two of them that have qualified and active there's one in dallas and there's one in houston and says that the bundles have to be less than one megawatt so put that in perspective that could be anywhere from 300 to 600 homes and essentially the way that this works is if you have battery storage at your house you have like the tesla battery power wall um ERCOT will either I don't know if ERCOT's doing this. I saw PG&E and Tesla do this for PG&E, text all the homeowners at noon and said, hey, we're expecting peak demand tonight at 6 p.m. We're going to charge your batteries right now, and then we're going to draw that power later and pay you a premium for it. Um, not sure if Texas is doing this exact thing, but regardless. What, um, I saw, what I saw in one of the articles, and I may get this wrong, but it was something like, We'll pay you X dollars per month for us to have control of your batteries. Oh, okay. Maybe so it's a, yeah. Whoever, mm-hmm. the, either the local utility or maybe it's ERCOT directed. Yeah, but I'll have that, to have to look up um, you know, what the what the incentive plans are around that. But still, um pretty cool because I think that the future is having these virtual power plants and especially homes if you have solar and you have batteries and you have electric vehicle battery capacity and maybe you have a night gas generator. All of a sudden you're running this little mini power plant that can put power back into the grid. You know, even like we were talking about diesel generators earlier, like, you know, say that there's peak demand on electricity and you got a nat gas generator that's hooked into gas lines, kick that thing on and <laughs> send, send electricity back into the grid. I mean, I've run, I've, you know, I used, I've had gas generators um, for every house, it doesn't make financial sense as an individual to run on gas prices. The only time is if the grid incentivize, which is not a word I know, but incentivizes yeah. you individuals by paying what it would cost if the grid went down. So yeah. you need that frequency regulation or whatever, however, demand regulation. Yeah. You need individuals to be paid extra premium yeah. for that and i think it's i think that should include there's a lot of natural gas generators here in houston I mean, yeah turn well, those suckers on yeah think about when how many make, megawatts you can produce when, with when you make sets. me a uh, head of ERCOT and i'm showing my fuck you fuck this shirt so <laughs> i'm disqualified but probably you know, the, the the thing that needs to happen because i almost invested in a company back in the late 90s when i was with stevens and they created inverters that allowed in effect a Back then, it was a diesel gen set that you had for backup power would allow uh, you to sell that electricity to the grid. They never made it, um, unfortunately. But the the pushback was always the owner of the wires saying, "Hey, center point, in you're going to yeah, you're going to blow this all up if we allow people to do that." So, as head of ERCOT, I will create an engineering commission. And the presumption is that any individual with generating capacity is going to be allowed to sell to the grid unless this commission says no. I The default is the science works, the engineering yeah. works. Come on, guys. And then the second thing I'm going to do is, in a, and I don't know if it's, it's probably not 100% of either, but it's a little bit of carrot, a little bit of stick. Hey, if you're rich and you have a, a natural gas gen set, I'm going to be able to kick you on, you know, Monday at noon and turn you off at nine. You get a little bit of a property tax break for this or something. But there's just there's no reason to be out there not utilizing the generating capacity. We have software. We'll be able to figure all this out. Yeah. Yeah. And I I just learned that. I've never owned a Generac that they go through a normal or a regular exercise cycle once a week. Mine yeah. always does. So what are you what are you doing with that exercise generated power? Is just go to waste or? Yeah, you burn it. You just yeah. make sure. I mean, the, so if you had if you had capacity for storing that, think about all the Generacs that are out there. Absolutely, exercise. But in Houston, in Houston, it is. I mean, until the battery prices still come down, it makes sense to have natural gas gen set back up. oh no 100 percent. because yeah. it number one is natural gas almost never goes down there are exceptions 
as yeah. we found out a, a little bit over a year ago. The pipeline's buried. But the pipeline's the buried aren't. and it runs. So, yeah, yeah the, um, you know, I think Chuck's always got a good story about this. So he talks about his dad spent all this money on getting solar and battery at the house. And Chuck is busting his dad's balls saying, you're never going to get payback on this. And then Winter Storm Yuri hits. Chuck loses power at his house. He has to go bunk up at dad's house. And, you know, there's a premium that you'll pay for self-sovereignty and being Absolutely. able to have 12.3-year you know, payback. Don't <laughs> let, sound so bad right about it's, now. It's called the emotional return or the emotional hedge. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, so, you know, I think that when you talk about these things like solar battery and if you stacked on that gas generator on top of that, I mean, does it make sense if you put it into an Excel spreadsheet? Probably not. But does it pay to for when you do have blackouts? And Absolutely. Yeah. You look like the kingpin in the neighborhood when you're your own. And hurricane plant, parties so. are really fun. Yeah. Well, and and the and the other thing that I'm coming to learn because I've been spending a lot of time on power. We always talk about how crappy ERCOT is and all the problems it has. It's just a leading indicator. The other grids catch up two years later. So yeah. every problem we've seen in ERCOT over the last little bit, it's starting right. to creep in on the other grids. Yeah. It stacks 80% coal, natural gas, and nuclear. You're retiring way more coal than you think <laughs> you are. <laughs> and you used to be at 15% excess generating capacity. You're at about two right hey, now. Hey, Chuck, so Mark, they're teaching. They're, 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 they're having power seminars at Uchi. I mean, i got to catch up here. Mark, Mark lives in South Dallas. So, I mean, that's yeah. it's, it's Next too time far I catch from... a Southwest flight out to your house, Mark, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll talk that. Right. There's a guy following Twitter that's in, always talking about the woodlands of South Dallas. And I just like him every time he has that comment. Rounding out the show, do y'all finger of the week? I have the finger of the week. This week's finger of the week goes to brain cancer. It, the, uh, this past weekend was the 10th anniversary of the passing of James Broach. James Broach was the most amazing human being that has ever graced the energy business. I hired him out of school. He worked for me for caught 12 out of his 15 professional years literally the best person on the planet and the the biggest compliment i can give to him and it's so true is you always wanted to be a better person when you were around him and i'm a shit and i don't feel that with many people at all but i always felt it with james and if you look at brain cancer unfortunately it's always terminal the standard of care hasn't improved in the last 30 years survivability rates have gone up like a month um, and it just doesn't happen to enough people. So there's not enough in the way of dollars to do research there. That being said, Dr. Lang at MD Anderson's doing a lot of amazing work there to advance the cause. And it's not just James. It took Ken Peak with it from us, who is CEO of Contango. It took Holly Hardy from us, who is in charge of energy investing at Rice. And it's just a really shitty, shitty disease. So finger of the week's not even a strong enough term to use, but fuck you, brain cancer. It's a good finger of the week. Amen. Thanks, Chuck. All right, guys. Well, it was good to have everyone back in the studio. Um, I'm glad that Mark's presence can be felt. Mark's gonna <laughs> Kirk and I will be anxiously watching ratings this week. I'm gonna go pump this one. <laughs> all right. If y'all enjoyed the show, make sure to share it with a friend, and we will catch y'all next week.